As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 188, and today we are talking about necrotizing fasciitis. So before we dive into that topic, let's do a quick listener shout out to Michelle. And Michelle says, I'm preparing to apply for nursing school and am really worried about passing dosage calculations. I signed up for straight A nursing boot camp and the scenarios for the dosage calculations module are hilarious. They're not dry and overwhelming like all the other practice problems I have seen. I'm now weirdly excited to learn more about dimensional analysis And for the first time, it has occurred to me that it might be possible to master this concept instead of just white knuckling through it. Thank you, Nurse Mo. Michelle, thank you so much. I'm glad you enjoy some of those scenarios. Yes, some of them are a little bit more on the fun side. So I'm glad that you appreciated that. And what Michelle is talking about is the Crucial Concepts Bootcamp, which is my nursing school prep course. And there's a whole module inside of that for dosage calculations. And that is on sale right now. So I will put the link to Crucial Concepts Bootcamp in the episode notes. For those of you that maybe don't need everything that's in Crucial Concepts, Bootcamp, you can get the dosage calculations just as its own complete standalone program. So the link for that will be in the episode notes as well. Okay, you guys, necrotizing fasciitis. So before I started working as a nurse in the medical ICU, I honestly thought necrotizing fasciitis was going to be one of those things that super scary, but doesn't really happen that often. I think I saw one of those medical shows where the person comes into the ER and they've got this bizarre diagnosis and, oh my gosh, what is it? And turns out it was necrotizing fasciitis and who would have thought and all of that. So I had it in my head that it was super, super rare. Well, it is really scary. I did get that part right, but it's not as rare as I thought it was going to be. I've actually seen it quite a few times. Though technically, it is considered a rare condition. It affects about 0.4 people per 100,000 in the U.S. But again, I've seen it many times. Well, maybe not many. I've seen it quite a few times in the medical ICU and in post-surgical patients. Here's another thing that's scary about necrotizing fasciitis. And I'm not saying all this to scare you, but now that I've seen it, It has made my top three list of things that I don't ever want to have. It can be absolutely devastating, and we'll talk about that some more in a bit. One of the things that's super scary is it can happen to anyone, though it is more likely to occur in people who have weakened immune systems, things like poorly controlled diabetes, HIV, alcohol and IV drug abuse, 
chronic renal failure, and obesity. But again, if you don't have any of these things, doesn't mean it can't happen. I'm just saying. So one of the things, another thing that scared me about necrotizing fasciitis as I learned about it and saw it in action is that it doesn't have to be set in motion by this super big, super obvious injury. Any break in the skin, even really small ones, can allow bacteria to enter and get into that deeper tissue. And in some cases of pharyngitis, dental infection, and even surgery, bacteria can cause necrotizing fasciitis of the head and the neck. And this bacteria can even translocate to a distal area of injury like a muscle strain. So yes, absolutely terrifying condition. So in necrotizing fasciitis, these bacteria get deep into the fascia where they produce endotoxins, and endotoxins are those toxins that are released as the bacteria die, think they've ended, they've died, endotoxins, and then exotoxins are the bacterial waste products. So these toxins set into motion a cascade of events that eventually lead to destruction of the muscle fascia and subcutaneous tissue. And as that infection travels along the fascial plane, overlying tissues can be unaffected. And guess what? This makes it really difficult to identify necrotizing fasciitis early on. So let's go through necrotizing fasciitis using the straight A nursing latte method. And if the latte method is new to you or you really like this organized way of looking at a disease condition, I will put the template in the episode notes for you. So the L in latte stands for look. How does the patient look? What are their presenting signs and symptoms? What do you notice about them? Well, because necrotizing fasciitis occurs in underlying tissues, again, it is often very difficult to detect, especially initially. Now, as that infection worsens, as the tissues are destroyed, the patient may exhibit more outward symptoms. So most of the time, the patient will have some kind of a break in the skin. Again, these can be very, very small and in any stage of healing. In those early stages, sometimes necrotizing fasciitis can often look a lot like cellulitis. So the MD may be going back and forth. Is it cellulitis? Is it necrotizing fasciitis? The patient may state that the area feels like they've pulled a muscle, and the skin may be hot, red, shiny, and swollen. That area of edema can also often extend beyond the area of redness and erythema. The patient may complain of numbness in the area when nerves are destroyed by that bacteria. And here is a key symptom, you guys. The pain of necrotizing fasciitis will be out of proportion to the context of the injury and extend beyond the area of the injury. Now, as that infection progresses, instead of redness, the area may appear bluish, purplish, bluish, or have a dusky blue color. So depending on when the patient is seen by medical professionals, the area surrounding it could look different. Additionally, there will be bullae or blisters at the affected area as that infection gets worse, 
And these are typically dark in color and filled with a foul-smelling exudate known as dishwater fluid or dishwater pus, which is a result of dying tissue. And the bullae themselves may bleed, but the typical sign with necrotizing fasciitis that when you cut into the wound is that there is no bleeding because everything has been destroyed. Many patients with necrotizing fasciitis develop sepsis, even very severe sepsis or septic shock, so the patient could be exhibiting signs of that. So looking at things like fever, tachycardia, hypotension, decreased level of consciousness, extreme fatigue, etc. And palpation over that area, if you were to touch it, could reveal crepitus that's only present in about 50% of cases. So if there is no crepitus, it doesn't necessarily mean there's no necrotizing fasciitis. So that's the general, how does the patient look kind of scenario. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place It all starts with a mindful moment. The next letter in the LATTE method is assess. How are we going to assess this patient? You definitely are keeping a very close eye on their vital signs. These patients can get very, very sick. They may have a fever, again, have tachycardia, be hypotensive, have increased respiratory rate, All of those things that accompany systematic inflammation, sepsis, bad infection. You want to assess the affected area for the quality of the pain, the level of the pain. Again, it will be out of proportion to the context of the injury in most cases. You will assess for edema, grade the edema in the affected area. And assess the wound itself if you can see an actual wound, because sometimes, again, The insult is very small, like I'm talking pinprick, very small. But if you can see the wound, assess it for signs of infection, including any drainage from the wound, what the type of drainage it is, and if that dishwater fluid is present, that would be especially troublesome. And then you want to look at T, what tests are ordered. What tests are ordered for a patient with necrotizing fasciitis? So the key diagnostic test for necrotizing fasciitis is surgical exploration of the soft tissues. A very quick surgical exploration method is called a finger test in which a small incision is made in that area through which the MD inserts a finger to probe the underlying fascia. If the wound has a lack of bleeding, that dishwater fluid, and minimal resistance to that dissection of the tissues, this is considered a positive finger test, and further emergent surgical intervention is needed. Other tests that could be done are radiographic imaging, like x-ray, CT scan, or MRI. This can be done if you suspect necrotizing fasciitis, but the studies say should not delay surgical intervention. 
Now, an x-ray will show if gas is present in the underlying tissues, but gas is not always present in the underlying tissues. Remember, only 50% of cases involve crepitus, so there may not be gas visible on that x-ray. A CT scan, however, is of much higher diagnostic value, and comparing that against an MRI, a CT scan is going to be much, much faster than an MRI, and time is of the essence when you're dealing with necrotizing fasciitis. Another test that will be ordered is a CBC. We want to get a white count. We want to see what the hemoglobin is. White count will likely be incredibly high. And the patient may even have a drop in their hemoglobin as they become anemic. Those red blood cells are getting destroyed by the bacteria. A culture of the wound will ensure that we get the correct antibiotics ordered and cultures are always taken before antibiotics are hung so that we get a really clear idea of what kind of antibiotic this wound needs. And a tissue biopsy may also be done. It will show tissue necrosis and the presence of those microorganisms. Okay, so the next T in the latte method is treatment. What treatments are provided for a patient with necrotizing fasciitis? So the priority, the key, number one, numero uno, threat level midnight, priority intervention with necrotizing fasciitis is surgical debridement of the wound. This means the surgeon must cut away all of the dead, damaged, and infected tissue and thoroughly wash out that wound to try to get every single bacteria out of there. Many times, and this is what I generally see, patients will need multiple debridement surgeries, and the amount of tissue removed, you guys, can be overwhelmingly devastating. I have seen just horrible, horrible disfigurements that occur because of the amount of tissue and muscle mass that is taken and amputations of entire limbs are not uncommon. Now, surgical wounds are left open post-op with a wet-to-dry dressing or maybe a vacuum-assisted closure device, what we call a wound vac. And then once the surgeon is confident that no additional debridements are going to be needed, they got all the infection out, then skin grafts may be utilized depending on the extent of that wound. Now, antibiotics cannot penetrate that infected dead tissue, which is another reason surgical debridement is the priority intervention. We want to get all of that dead tissue out of the way so that the antibiotics can get to work on that other tissue. So IV antibiotic therapy utilized to control the spread of infection and the spread of sepsis often includes vancomycin, clindamycin, metronidazole, and zosin. So those are some very common antibiotics that you might see prescribed for a patient with necrotizing fasciitis. Again, the antibiotic therapy is tailored to the specific organisms present. So again, super important to get that wound culture prior to starting the patient on the antibiotics. Some critically ill patients may receive IVIG therapy, though it is not FDA approved and the effectiveness of it is a bit controversial, but you may see it. And then hyperbaric oxygen therapy is another controversial treatment that may be utilized. So in addition to providing much-needed oxygen to the nearby tissues, some of the bacteria and necrotizing fasciitis are 
anaerobic, which means they thrive in an oxygen-low environment. So by increasing the oxygen level of their environment, we make their environment basically inhospitable for anaerobic organisms. And some studies suggest that hyperbaric oxygen therapy can also enhance the ability of neutrophils to kill the invading organism. So we're going to make it really hard for anaerobic organisms to survive, and we're going to give the neutrophils a boost to really get in there and do their work. Now, many times, patients with necrotizing fasciitis are gravely, gravely ill with severe sepsis and septic shock. Additional therapies, of course, are going to be utilized to address all of those complications. Okay, so that's the general idea of treatment. The short version is surgery, antibiotics, maybe IVIG, maybe hyperbaric oxygen therapy. The E in the LATTE method stands for educate. How do you educate the patient and the family? The main takeaways with education for this family and this patient are preparing them for the massive, massive, and sometimes disfiguring surgical procedures that need to be done. You also want to emphasize personal hygiene and hand washing as the first-line defense against infection. You don't want this person to get necrotizing fasciitis ever, ever again. While in the hospital, the patient will have multiple tests performed, regular blood work. It's going to be very intense. Make sure the family, the patient understand the rationale and why we're doing all of these things. Make sure they understand the need for the frequent treatments, the frequent interventions, and the frequent even surgeries that may be necessary. And then if the patient survives, hopefully they do prior to discharge, they need to be instructed on wound care if they're going home, like for instance with a wound vac, for example, and how to take care of that in the home environment. Probably in a lot of cases, there would be a visiting nurse coming to help take care of that wound. So I hope that gives you kind of an overview of necrotizing fasciitis. So before I let you go, let's do a little bit of pod quizzing on this one. And pod quizzes are just a quick way to do a little audio quizzing to see if you're understanding concepts. And if you like this format of studying and review, I want you to check out Study Sesh, which is my private podcast. That's basically a ton of pod quiz episodes. So I'll put the link to that in the episode notes. Okay, first question. Even though anyone could get necrotizing fasciitis, knock on wood, what is it most likely to occur in people with which kind of underlying conditions? And there are a few, so just see if you can name two or three. So poorly controlled diabetes was one. HIV, alcohol and IV drug abuse chronic renal failure, and obesity. Think compromised immune system as well. What are endotoxins? Endotoxins are the toxins released as the bacteria die. Remember, they've ended, so they have endotoxins. And then what are exotoxins? Bacterial waste products.
Why might a patient with necrotizing fasciitis complain of numbness in the area? Because the nerves may be damaged by that bacteria. Describe the pain with necrotizing fasciitis. Typically, the pain is out of proportion to the context of the injury. You are palpating an area of injury on a patient and you feel crepitus. What would this indicate? That would be an indicator that there is gas in the underlying tissues. That is bacterial gas formation. What is the quick diagnostic test for necrotizing fasciitis that involves a small incision? We call that the finger test. And that finger test is considered positive if what three criteria are met. So the three criteria for a positive finger test are a lack of bleeding from that incision, dishwater fluid or that dishwater pus, and minimal resistance to the dissection of the tissues. What is the numero uno treatment for necrotizing fasciitis? surgical debridement of the wound. And see if you can name two common antibiotics utilized in the treatment of necrotizing fasciitis. Vancomycin, clindamycin, metronidazole, and zosin. There are some others, but those are some of the most common ones. And Zosin is a combination drug, piperacillin, and tazobactam. But that's a mouthful, so we just say Zosin. And then what are two other specialized type of treatments that you might see? They may have a little bit of a controversial use, but could be helpful in some cases. What were they? So one was IVIG therapy, and the other hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Okay, you did excellent with that pod quiz. If you found that to be helpful, then I want you to check out Study Sesh. Again, I'll put the link in the episode notes. I'm also going to put a link to Crucial Concepts Bootcamp, which is my nursing school prep course. And that is on sale right now if you guys are listening to this as the episodes come out. I want you to check that out if you're an incoming student and you're ready to start nursing school 100% on top of your game. So link to that in the episode notes. And then next week, we'll be diving into secret number six of successful nursing students and a common cardiovascular disorder. So I'll see you again soon. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. 
Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.